This podcast is brought to you by Retro Instruments, makers of the Stay Level, Power Strip, and 176 Limiting Amp. Retro Instruments, vintage design for modern recording. Learn more at RetroInstruments.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. The husband and wife team of Elena Moore and Patrick Riley formed their band Tennis after a sailing trip down the eastern seaboard, an experience that made for the subject matter on their first album, Cape Dory. After several albums and a home studio build, the band has released Swimmer, a collection that documents personal loss and growth. Online publisher Jeff Stanfield recently chatted with Tennis from their home in Denver, Colorado. Enjoy! Thanks for uh, sitting down with us today and, and chatting. Um, 2018 um, was a year f- for tennis that, um, you know, you guys really started actually rolling, you're touring, you're, you know, you've, you've had a little bit of success and then sounded like there were a series of challenges and extended family health issues, uh, including you, Elena, that um, sort of informed the writing. Can you can you talk a little bit about some of the stuff that led up to to making this new record? Yeah, it was a very uh, in, it was a very extreme juxtaposition for us where um, our, it felt like everything with our band was finally clicking for the first time in a really long time. And simultaneously our personal lives were falling apart. And we basically, we called 2018 the year from hell. (laughs) Yeah, that was definitely, that was not only the hardest tour for both of us, but it was the hardest tour for our band. It was the hardest tour for our management. Everyone on board was like having a very difficult time dealing with us. Um, so yeah, um we while it was happening, um I the silver lining to me throughout that experience was that pain is really good for writing. <laughs> so th- that was literally the thing um that was keeping it together for me throughout the course of that year was that I I really wanted to go home and write about it. I don't like to write on the road, but I just knew while it was happening that I would have a lot to work with. Um, So it feels really amazing and cathartic to finally be on the other side of things, to be in a better place personally, but to have made a record that was not only cathartic, but almost acts. It's sort of like archival where um, we're sort of commemorating this like very profound, albeit painful period in our lives that was so transformative to our relationship, our writing relationship, our partnership, um, on a lot of, on a lot of levels. Right. And, and for this record, I mean, in the, in the past you, you've worked with engineers, um, on, on making records, but for this record, it sounds like you really sort of took the reins, uh, between the two of you, not, not only with just the writing, which is what you've done in the past, but with the production and engineering aspect of it. Yeah, for um, yours, our 
our last full length, Yours Conditionally, we also engineered and produced ourselves. And that was really our first foray into taking the reins. We both felt like we needed a lot of time um, working with other engineers and producers to kind of hone our craft and learn what we wanted to be able to do in the studio. Um, and we were finally able to all put it to use with this record. Yeah, I feel I feel like for like the last seven years, we've just been working at the best studios we could possibly go to with the best people we could meet. Um, and we've just been studying everything they've done. And like, in some cases, even like, you know, like, I don't know, tricking the assistant into teaching us all the tricks that that <laughs> producer is doing. Um, but we've just been taking notes for so many years that uh, we finally felt comfortable um, doing it ourselves. And was it always sort of the the end goal? Like, hey, we, you know what, at some point we're going to we're going to do this ourselves. Yeah, we came up out of the DIY scene and Pat has a lot of engineering experience prior to this. And we just know that the recording experience um, is a lot more freer when we have a like when we're literally free, when the more autonomy we have, the more creative we feel like we are and the more we um, opportunities we have to explore with our writing. Um, so this has always been the goal. And this is the first time we felt like we're really ready to operate our own studio and work independently. Yeah. I think the when we first started out, we still, you know, self-engineered in quotes, air quotes there. But we, um, you know, we recorded everything on four tracks and a little bit of garage band bouncing back and forth. Um, but we just never had the gear or the space. We were living in an apartment. We were broke. So. Um, the DIY scene was really forgiving towards that type of music being released at the time. Like, I feel like lo-fi came at a really opportunistic time for our band because that was just, you know, that's what we had. Um, but Yeah, it gave us a chance to basically be really bad at recording. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and the whole scene would forgive us while we learned what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, along with, um, you know, doing something all on your own. I mean, one of the benefits that I see of working with people is that, you know, you're sort of held accountable. There's a little bit of a schedule. Um, you're, you know, you have somebody to bounce ideas off of. I mean, um, so how did you guys reconcile, you know, going from one to the other? Yeah, I think Elaine and I are like very, very, um, very, very like, uh, opinionated people. Um, and that's like, we, we already have like so much ego in the room to begin with that it's sometimes like too much for even another person to be in the room to bounce another idea off of. And that's even some, like occasionally I feel like we've hurt like other producers feelings <laughs> because we're just so intense. Uh, yeah. There's like barely enough room for me and Pat to be in the room at once. <laughs> Yeah. So how do you guys um, balance that and also have, um, I mean, that's a tricky one too, right? You're, you're in a band together. There, that's a, that's a dynamic for sure. And then you're also um, married to each other. So it's not like you get to, um, I mean, maybe you do, maybe you go have separate dinner. I don't know. Yeah. Fortunately we've, we've, um, you know, it's taken a long time to sort this working relationship out. But, you know, the fact of our being married and having a really close partnership 
allows us to be, you know, extremely forthright with our feedback. Like I can show Pat something and he'll just be like, no. <laughs> but and, we don't, I don't, I um, hope you don't get offended. I don't. No, I don't. Exactly. And that's the other thing is that um, we respect each other's opinions so much that, you know, we usually just shake it off and trust each other. And then at the end of the day, if we're really at a stalemate and every once in a while things will get heated where one of us will feel really passionate about something and the other one doesn't want to do, we have just made the decision to privilege our relationship and our partnership over the creative power move, basically. Um, and I know that that's different for every couple that's in a creative collaborative relationship. Um, but for us, uh, it's the only thing that helps us navigate those times. Um, tell me a little bit about the actual build of the studio. Um, I've seen the photos of you laying the floor and, you know, you did the sound treatments and all this stuff. So obviously you didn't just sort of direct the the build and have somebody come in and do it. It really looks like you guys, um, you know, rolled up your sleeves. Yeah. In the heart of the DIY scene, we definitely uh, did all the work ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So the studio is in the detached garage in our backyard um, and it's an old Victorian house and the garage is built like shit, which actually works in our favor. There's no 90 degree angles. There's no corners and the ceiling slopes. It's like um, a very intense slope. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it was really hard to finish um, to trim that out, but it's great for sound. Um, the whole back wall, we decided to um, upholster the wall with foam panels covered in velvet. I I really wanted the space to be aesthetically pleasing in addition to being functional in every way. Um, so yeah, it's all insulated with rock wool and then all of our like um, like sound treatment within the room, I upholstered with velvet and it just has this like really soft, like lush feeling in there. Um, that I love so much, but the room sounds awesome. It's not totally dead. It still sounds a bit like a room, but um, I'm so happy with the way it came out. And what, um, I saw that you have this uh, tidy little console in there and, um, you know, a rack of some outboard gear. So what's your, what's your recording setup and, and your process? Are you doing a hybrid system with some analog processing on the front and back? Are you working in Pro Tools? Like just, you know, can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, I think throughout the years, we noticed there's like two types of people. Um, there's like people who use a lot of, they record like, I guess, safer, like cleaner signals um, that are, you know, full frequencies, like all the information's there and then they tend to affect it either in the box or maybe, yeah, do like a hybrid thing where they're bouncing it back out to do all the effects and whatnot and EQ. But we, um, I don't know, we really took after Richard Swift um, when we recorded with Richard Swift. This is the first time we ever saw someone just committing so hard to compression and EQ and, you know, printing spring reverb on the vocal track and all that stuff. And at first we were like kind of scared about it, but we immediately found out that that's the type of people that both of us are. So we, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to talk about that, Elena? Uh, yeah, it's like having a tape mentality, but still all the convenience of Pro Tools. So yeah, I mean, we definitely record everything digitally, but we 
commit to everything as it goes in with all of our outboard gear. Um, and, yeah, we're like yeah. essentially pre-mixing everything before it even goes in. So I think for most of the things we we do like the the Studer, we have a 269 uh, Studer console from the, I think it's 1967 or something like that. Um, but it's so it's super clean, but super vibey. It's not, you know, it's really, it's oddly like really high five for, um, how old it is. Um, but we use that for, we try and use those EQs on pretty much everything. And we use tons of compression going in. Um, but I think our go-to is probably, we still end up using an 1176 a lot and, you know, the empirical lab stuff, like we have a fatso and some distressors and, um, stuff like that. But yeah, we just print, print as much as possible going in, even when it's, uh, to our detriment. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think to your point about somebody like Richard Swift, I mean, the, by doing that, you know, recording it that way where you're actually committing, um, you know, when you do print a spring reverb that takes up a certain amount of space in the sonic spectrum, which sort of starts to inform your next choice. So rather than just, you know, capturing everything, like you said, and then kind of making all your mix and treatment choices after the fact, um, it really changes the way that records end up sounding. I, I always feel like you end up doing a little bit less, you know, and um, there's something that feels a lot more timeless about those recordings because they just have a, um, a different sort of intent and story to them. And there's so, so much processing is, is it, it really sort of reflects a, a state of emotion. You can really tell a story um, with, with sound, with, with certain types of reverbs or delays or those sorts of treatments and in EQ. So I, I really, I noticed that about this record, um, things have a, a, a nice space around them and let, let those elements shine, um, in a way that's, it's kind of unique. So thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Richard influenced us so much. Um, totally changed the way that we track my vocals, but especially the way we track drums. And we usually do, we, in fact, we always do drums first and we will spend most of the day getting the tones exactly how we want it before we hit record. Um, and then we're committed and that the choices we made with the drum tones will determine every single choice we make from that moment on. And I like the limiting factors. And in the studio, if I can't get excited about the first one single thing that we're recording, then it's really, really hard for me to have like focus and yeah. vision to finish the song. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the record specifically. I mean, and I'd like to start with the, the title of the record, um, which is Swimmer. Um, and, and the title has an interesting story. Um, maybe you could tell that. Yeah, it means a lot of things to me. I definitely meant swimmer in, uh, a less literal, more archetypal sense in the way that we felt kind of just like out to sea <laughs> during that year where everything was sort of like upended almost dissociative in a weird way. Um, 
And throughout that period, we found ourselves leaning in on our relationship a lot. And that was kind of the lifeline throughout that period of time. And while I was still processing everything, um, we scattered Patrick's father's ashes at sea um, in lieu of a funeral or anything really conventional. Um, And it was a really understated event. And we weren't there when his dad died. So it was sort of just like no closure, just an important person in your life just vanishing. And as we were scattering his dad's ashes, it occurred to me in almost a very weird morbid juxtaposition. I was just like, I never even learned how to swim. (laughs) And I'm 34 and I can't even get in the water. I'll die. Um, And I don't know why, as I had that thought occur to me, I just decided that we would call the record swimmer and I would kind of explore the events that had transpired that year and what that meant to us emotionally and to our relationship. Your first record was written as you guys took a sailing trip. Um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but like you have the the band itself, tennis sounds like indie yacht rock in a lot of ways in the, in the best sense of it, like um, that real seventies, Carol King, Carly Simon like feeling, but you've, you've maintained this um, water theme. Yeah. Yeah. And it it is weird for me to compare our first record, Cape Dory, with Swimmer now, even though the even though the ocean, water sailing has continued to be really uh influential to our lives and to our writing, it's in such a different way now. I mean, I feel it's so weird hearing that album back. Yeah, I mean I I listened to Cape Dory and I don't know that person anymore. <laughs> you know, I was like, we, you know, we we're like 24, 23. It was also almost 11 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I do hear like, I mean, I have such a strong attachment because that's the first thing we ever wrote together. But I hear all of my naivety, you know, like the world hasn't touched me. The world hasn't hurt me. Like I haven't experienced anything yet. (laughs) And that's what I hear when I listen to that record. It's kind of nice to frankly reclaim some of those themes, but with the wisdom of age and experience. Yeah. And hopefully you'll you'll look back in 10 years from now and and you'll feel the same way about this record in some regard in terms of, um, you know, growth and progress. I hope I feel that way about every album. And when I don't feel that way, then I will stop writing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's I think it's I think you're in trouble if you go back to your very first record and go, man, we really nailed it. But um, yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, man, we got to get back to that. (laughs) Well, let's talk about a few of the songs on the record. Um, Let's start with Need Your Love. that one was so fun to record that one was we knew obviously it's a pretty drum focused song but we spent like all day getting those drum tones because we knew they're going to be like the loudest thing in the mix by the long shot yeah when pat 
first shared this idea with me, I felt like the song needed um, something more assertive from me as a songwriter and a lyricist. Um, and I had been listening to a lot of Laura Nero at the time, and I really liked the way that she would do very sudden time changes or tempo changes. Um, her songwriting would often feel like very like wild and spontaneous, uh, but it always felt very fluid in the end. And I really wanted to emulate that. And I had this really ballady chorus that was about 40 BPMs too slow for the song, but I thought we should just play right into it without any lead up or warning, uh, just like some of my favorite Laura Nero songs do. And at first it was like a bit of a puzzle to piece the song back together to get in and out of each of those parts, but I feel like it came out our best songwriting that we've done. Let's talk about um, how to forgive. Yeah, I had this long-term goal of writing a song where I could channel 80s Madonna, where she sounds um, so like playful and girlish, um, where she sings like in that highest possible register, um, but is still belting. Um, so that we went into it with that aesthetic goal and really wrote the song around that. When you're recording, and I guess this talks to your writing as well, but do you ever uh, assume characters? Yeah, I actually, I never did that before, and I didn't even know it was a thing until I read a PJ Harvey interview where she talked about how she had that approach to each record and would write from a character's perspective and then sing in their voice, even if it was out of her range and unflattering to her. And that totally blew my mind. And then I realized from then on, that's how I wanted to write. And that's how I was writing intuitively. When I hear melodies, I'm imagining, I'm always channeling someone else. Like I will imagine like, what would Carol King sing to this? Or what would Laura Nero sing to this? Um, so I, I don't know, I, that, I feel like that really unlocked something for me. And I pursued it much more, uh, specifically with this record because we were recording alone and I was able to produce my own vocals so I could take the time that I needed to make any tweaks in real time to actually get the effect that I was going for.
Let's talk about Echoes, another favorite of mine on the record. Cool. That is such a relief because there are some moments where we were like, what is happening with this song? We almost didn't put it on the record. <laughs> yeah, we didn't know if that one was going to come together. And a lot of people have been pointing it out. So that is such a relief. <laughs> I don't normally do this, but I wrote Echoes like singer-songwriter style with an acoustic guitar. I don't normally play that instrument and I don't normally write that way. Um, so sometimes when we do, it kind of has more of the limitations built into the song because it feels more singer-songwritery than like a band that's building ground up just based off of like sounds and vibe. Yeah, I think that was like, whenever we have a song that's like, sounds like a songwriter wrote it, we just don't know what to do. So we're like, immediately start experimenting. And uh, the first thing we started with was drums. We thought a way we can temper that feeling was maybe just use drum machine. And then we were putting it on and it felt really forced and not, wasn't feeling natural. And then. Yeah. We always struggle to figure out how to flesh out a song like that in a way that feels original. So then we started imagining if Joe Meek produced a Paul Simon song and that is where we landed with echoes. That is great to hear. (laughs) I totally get it. That's awesome. Yeah, we were like, yeah, we were like, that's literally the only thing we could think of to make this song feel like innovative and not like just a girl singing in her bedroom with her guitar. How did you guys like discover somebody like Joe Me? That was uh, even when we were first starting out, that was both of one, our like favorite producer engineers. Um, Elaine and I really we we did go to music school in college, but we both dropped out. So um, we did have a, I don't know, somewhat of a knowledge of production and you know we looked Phil Spector and kind of I don't know bonded over girl groups but Joe Meek for us is just I love how bold he is I love that he will ruin a song with production and just stand behind it (laughs) yeah I love his uh yeah I mean he will ruin songs but in the best way I love the idea of taking a really beautiful thing and then making it as hideous and jarring as possible um, I think it's so brave and so fun and wild. Yeah, and like, can... <laughs> um, also, though, our relationship to music is sort of our relationship to film, where we're almost more into directors than movies, and we're really into like producers over even like artists in particular. Um, and one more, another one I just really love that stands out to me is Tender. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't even know where to start with that one. I wrote, that was your baby. Yeah, I wrote um, the guitar part on the boat. Um, and, you know, we just had this like little recording set up with an acoustic guitar and um, put like a weird drum machine behind it. And we just got more and more attached to it. But um, as we started to flush it out, it was... I don't know, it just got weirder and weirder and we just kind of embraced where it was taking us and we didn't expect it to go on the record, but um, once you, I feel like once you wrote the chorus, mm-hmm. uh, that's when like it started to find its glue. Yeah, that one was an instance of like Pat writing music and then me having to sing over top of it, which is really challenging for me because he's not writing with melody or structure in mind, but I kind of like it because it forces me to do something 
less expected, but we were really listening to a lot of Essie Rogi, and we tried to mix it that way too, with like dry vocals over top of those washed out guitars. It's interesting talking to you about all these tunes um, because of sort of how different the approach was on each of them. And I think that that's worth highlighting because there's not one way to write a song. There's not one way to approach a song in terms of production. Um, I love the idea of putting uh, instruments in the hand. You know, Miles Davis was somebody that always put um, his... Uh, band members in challenging situations with instruments they weren't necessarily comfortable playing and and I always thought the results were super interesting and and exploratory um, and I and it sort of talks to you writing um, tunes on an acoustic guitar like echo that's not your main instrument um, right right yeah, we really like the limiting factors, especially choosing a limiting factor that makes us inherently uncomfortable. Um, but also, um, usually on every record, um, it'll be 50-50 songs that were originally conceived by me and songs that were originally conceived by Pat. And we both always have a different entry point into songwriting. And we're I usually really firm about that, too. Yeah, but... Then when we bring what we've started to the other person and kind of bring them on almost in like a producer role um, to help each other finish the song, I feel like that's what's helped us create a sound and continue to grow with each album. Totally. On the mixing, are you guys uh, collaborating on that or does somebody mix and you guys each do a mix or are you mixing and then... Um... Like how talk talk to me a little bit about how yeah you finish. So yeah, uh, it is weird uh, involving other mixers with our sessions because basically we're sending like a a very pre mixed, very like committed session. Like there's whoever's uh, so the person who mixed uh, Swimmer is Claudius Mittendorfer, um, and we've worked with him in the past, but. Yeah, we're basically sending him something that already has so much compression on every track, so, like so many effects printed, and he's he's balancing. He's maybe adding a little bit of width and depth to the mix. But um, Elaine and I um, both, we basically just have these huge FaceTime sessions with Claudius because now he lives in London where we're listening to the mix in real time, and we'll just go through all our points. And um, yeah, he I think we really work well with him. Yeah, we're extremely hands-on with the mixing process, but that's why we really liked working with Claudius most recently. Um, he's just, he's very collaborative and 
um, doesn't mind that we're so controlling. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't mind dealing with just like a track that has a lot of garbage in it too. Like, <laughs> I feel like we, some of the we'll things just... we're sending him are just so dirty. Like honestly on Tender is a tomb. Um, the song that we were just talking about the like drum machine groove that's, uh, beneath that song is just, it's pretty gnarly. And I felt Full a little embarrassed like <laughs> sending it over, but, um, yeah did a good job <laughs> well thanks guys this has been this is great cool awesome. yeah thank you we love tape op so much it's the only magazine that we have a subscription to oh nice well <laughs> thank you for that yeah <laughs> seriously we love it <laughs> thanks for listening find us online at tapeop.com facebook twitter and instagram until next time 